what we're doing is we're preaching through what we're proposing is to be a revision to our church covenant. And what I'm going to do, Richard and I, is we're just going to walk through these sections, take the Scripture passages that are with them, uh, the, the different sections of the covenant, and we're just going to preach through those and explain what's going on in the covenant. Uh, actually, we're, we're not going to explain it. God's Word is going to explain to us what's there, and we're going to try to preach through there and guide us through that. There are some schedules in the back that kind of break down what's going to be coming week after week. If you want one of those, grab them. And uh, in case I didn't mention this last week, our church covenant is located within our Constitution and bylaws. So if you get a copy of that, you would see our current church covenant is within that document. They're not two separate, but they're together. And so I said last week, in case you're wondering why the revision, and I made the statement there's nothing wrong with our current uh, church covenant. The revision is uh, a fuller version of what we already have. It just enhances what we already have, builds on that, puts more things into it biblically that we're called to be God's people, God's covenant church. And so uh, for the sake of time this week and the different places we're going to be going, uh, I'm going to pray. There's not going to be an introduction. We're just going to jump right in and we're going to start. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for... Uh, your redeeming grace. God, last week we learned that God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And that God, uh, we were born under your wrath, and, and rightly so, and a just God has, uh, must punish sin, and we were without excuse, God. Uh, we had no hope in this world. All of us are condemned. And yet, God's grace has appeared, bringing us salvation. God, I thank you this morning that... Um, I am not what I used to be. God, Your grace has transformed my life. I'm not all that I should be. But praise God today for the hope that Your gospel brings to us this day. And so help us, God, I pray as we study Your word this morning. God, may it just not be the the focus of a covenant, even though we want to understand that we are a covenant community. We're God's people and we covenant together. But God, may the Word change us and transform us this day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're looking at your handout, we've kind of uh, given a main idea to all these Scriptures, kind of brought them together, given us a main idea. And you see there, a covenant community gathers, prays, worships, and shares life. That's what this section is going to tell us about a church covenant. Biblically, this is what uh, we're to be as God's people. So if you're looking there, first point of the handout, a covenant community does not neglect one another. A covenant community does not neglect one another. <clears throat> and we'll look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 for that. But before we look at 24 and 25, we need to summarize the previous verses before those, in verses 19 through 25 as a whole here, there are three exhortations or encouragements. And each of those begin with two words, let us. Verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. In verses 19 through 21, Christians are told that your whole relationship with God, your whole Christian life is based on the person and work of Jesus. If you're a Christian, your whole life is based on what Jesus has done. Everything about your life is wrapped up in Him. Who He is and what He came to do and what He in fact accomplished and finished on your behalf. The author says if you understand that, 
If you believe that, if you've taken that in, that will change your life and it will change your life in these ways. Verse 22, you will draw near to God. Verse 23, you will hold fast. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 24, you will consider one another. Verses 22 and 23, the explanation, draw near to God, continue to trust Him and His promises. And then we come to verse 24. That's where our focus is going to be. It's an exhortation that points us how we relate to one another. (coughs) Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. In a covenant community, which is what the local church is, in the covenant community, in the church, God wants members to show consideration for one another. Consider, that word here, is a verb. You remember your elementary school days? What does a verb mean? Action, right? Then it means you need to do something. In other words, biblically, this is a command. The command is to consider. It means to, that word consider means to fix your thoughts on, take notice of, or keep an eye on one another. (coughs) Consider one another. Let us, Christians, (coughs) church members, consider. Let us keep on caring for one another. That's a command, right? Not an option. That's what we are commanded to do is to take notice, to keep an eye on one another. Now, don't misunderstand keeping an eye on one another. That's not this thing here. You know, that's not what it's talking about. It means to be thinking about others and looking out for others. And notice how it says to consider, (coughs) excuse me, one another, how to stir one another up to love and good works. The command is to consider how to stir, notice those next two words, one another. To love and good works. It's the only use of one another in the Hebrew. Now, if you read through the rest of the New Testament, there's, and you heard the scripture that Richard read this morning, which we're going to talk a little bit about. You hear the words one another over and over. You read the New Testament, particularly Paul's letters, you will see that phrase show up time and time and time again. But here is the only time it appears in Hebrews. The word consider means that you have to give some thought to this or it won't happen. Okay? <coughs> Let me say that again. You have to give some thought to this or it will not happen. If you don't think, if you don't put some action to this, it's not going to happen. To give thought to it means that you have to take your focus off yourself and think about others. Boy, that's a big deal, right? That's a big deal for us. What does this other person need to help him or her grow in love and good deeds? Love, here's the idea of a caring response to need in the life of another believer. God's works are tangible expressions of caring love, loving people. But works are an evidence, a, a tangible expression of love for someone. And we're to consider one another, that we stir one another up for love and good works. That word, uh, Those words, stir up... <coughs> Stir or stir. I'm from Georgia, so it's stir. You stir one another up. Some of you have a translation that says provoke or spur on or stimulate. Now that word provoke, when you hear that, normally it's used in a negative way, right? Maybe you provoke someone to anger. Those of you who have siblings. 
You've been provoked, right? The older has a tendency to... Galen Jailbird grinning. <laughs> Has a tendency to provoke you, right? What's mama say? Don't mess with your little brother. Don't. Really, don't provoke them. That's the way we kind of hear that word. That's what we think. But here, instead of stirring up or provoking the anger, consider means that a Christian gives thought to how he or she can stir one another up to love and good deeds. Provoking them, not making them angry, but stirring them up. Spurring them on. This means that Christian love and good works need to be <coughs> worked at. They don't, they don't come, right? That's part of the discipleship. Someone gets saved, teaching them to follow Jesus is coming alongside them. You've got to stir somebody up, right? Someone who knows Christ, they've been transformed, but it's a responsibility to stir them up, come alongside them. That has to be worked at. It isn't automatic. It requires thought and effort. And because of what Jesus has done, because of who He is and what He's done for you, Christian, be deliberate to stir one another up. Remember, that's what Paul said in verses 19 and 23. Because of that, here's what you need to do. You need to consider one another how you can stir them up. Not to irritate or frustrate, but to stir them up to love and good deeds. Every one of us who professes the name of Christ has a responsibility. We're commanded to stir other believers up. Not in a negative sense. You know, I was thinking about that this week. Sometimes, to our shame, we can do that better than we can the positive way, right? We're gathering here today so that when we leave, we'll have more power to love, more motivation to love, more wisdom to do good works so that people will see our good works, as Jesus said, and give glory to our Father in heaven. Here's what's at stake in this. It's the glory of God. The glory of God's not being seen by how we consider one another. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't just drift into gathering, okay? A Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, we come thinking about all kinds of things, right? We come Sunday mornings and we got... Things bounce. It's like a pinball machine some days. we got things bouncing around in our head. That ball's in there just going back and forth. And we, we just don't come. We just don't drift in here. When you come on Sunday morning, you are on mission to stir one another up. We come considering. We're working at how we're going to do that. We're on the lookout. We're watching and we're watching and we're listening what does fill in the blank need today? And by fill in the blank, I'm talking about a person. What? And I think I told you this several weeks ago. I've gotten in the habit of Sunday mornings I'll sit down and, and I try to keep um, a record and I think about one or two people that I'm going to intentionally engage them when I'm at church. How's life going for you? What's going on today? You know, just hearing someone talk about life is a means of showing them love and encouraging them and stirring them up. We come, we gather in order to stir one another up. How do you empower someone to love and good deeds in spite of all the obstacles they run into at home and work? The answer is you build their hope 
in what the writer was saying prior to this. You build their hope in the promises of God. Love and good works grow, one author says, on the taproot of belief in the promises of God. You want you you think is it really that easy? Just to remind someone of the gospel, to stir them up toward love and good deeds. Well, that's what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us, reminding one another of the gospel. So listen, if you're not here, then you can't what? You can't consider one another. You can't stir one another up to love and good deeds. See, coming to church on Sunday morning is not just about you getting here. Yes, you need to you need to get here. We want you to get here safely, but it's more about someone else than it is about you. You're here to be fed, yes, but you're here for who? Somebody else. To stir somebody else on. Now, the context of this provoking to love and good deeds takes place when we gather for worship. Look at verse 25. <clears throat> Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You read this, and apparently some had dropped out of coming to corporate worship, right? Or he wouldn't have said that. It's the habit of some. That word kind of caught my attention this week. Habit, right? How many of y'all have habits? Good ones and bad ones. This is a bad one. Neglecting to come and gather and stir up one another. It's a habit of some people to do that. Some had dropped out of coming to corporate worship. Perhaps they, you know, maybe they got their feelings hurt or they were hurt by other believers and, you know, they find better things to do. Maybe they think they can worship God better alone. Here's what I want to say. Almost always, when people drop out of coming to worship, their focus is on themselves, not on God and other people. When people drop out of coming to worship, their focus is on themselves and not on God and others. Instead of thinking, how can I be used of God to stir up others to love? They think, my needs are more important. See, when you're not here, and I think I've said this, and I'm probably say it again. When you're not here, you can't encourage others to love and good deeds. You can't do that. And by the way, this is, is this an option for us, church? No, this is a command. So to not gather is, I'll go ahead and say it. It's a sin. To make it a habit. Not when you go on vacation are you sinning. Not when you're sick or there's a... a, a an ox in the ditch, and you know what I mean by that. It's, it's those who make a habit of it. That's a sin. When you're not here, you can't encourage. You can't obey this command that God gives us to stir others up to love and good deeds. You, you have to gather with the saints to do that. Church members, professing Christians, you're not only to provoke one another to love and good deeds, you're to commit yourselves your congregation's designated weekly gatherings. Notice I put an S on that. Do not neglect gathering together with one another. You need that, yes, and your brothers and sisters in Christ need you. I don't know about you, that's pretty clear. That we are failing to do what God calls us to do when we make a habit of not gathering. Look at verse 25. But encouraging one another. <clears throat> We're to be intentional in seeking to give one another encouragement. 
And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, uh, the day refers to the coming of Jesus. You're to do this how? All the more as that day approaches. And the day is what? What does the writer say, say about that day? It's what? It's drawing near. As my dad used to say, we're closer than we've ever been. When you got up this morning, you were closer yesterday to Jesus coming. You're closer today than you've ever been. Closer than you were yesterday to the end. And how should you respond to that? Here's what the writers say. How should you respond knowing that you're closer today to Jesus coming than you were yesterday? You respond to that truth by considering how to stir one another up, not neglecting to gather and encouraging one another. So it shouldn't be a matter of when you go to bed on Saturday night, are we going to church tomorrow? That should not even enter your mind. It should be, am I going to be obedient to the Word of God? Because Jesus is coming and it's closer than it's ever been. I need to be there to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ to stir them up towards love and good deeds. I'm going to tell you something. That makes coming on a Sunday morning a whole lot different than just showing up, right? There's purpose in why we come. And I will also add this. That means church membership is really, really important, right? If this is a command for us to do this and you join a local church, then you're committing that I'm going to be faithful to stir one another up by gathering. (coughs) Second, a covenant community is a God-dependent people. James 5.16. James 5.16. Pew Bible, 1,013. James 5, 16. I know I listed 16, but I'm going to read verse, start at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, the pastors, and let them pray over them, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details about what's going on here with the, the oil and all that. We preached through James in 2014. You can go on the website and you can hear what we had to say about that. But I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. Uh, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power <coughs> as it is working. Here's what James is saying. All of life should be lived with a Godward, God-dependent focus. Verse 13 says, Is anyone suffering? What should he do? Pray. James says suffering should drive us to what? Pray. When we Christians, church members, encounter difficulties, is prayer our first response? If I'm perfectly honest, I'd go... No. I was talking with a gentleman years ago and, and uh, the situation, I won't go into the details. I said, man, we just need to pray about this. And he said, good Lord, has it got to that point? And I'm thinking, what? This is not just when you have suffering, but when other fellow church members are suffering. Pray for the ability to for that person to endure that suffering and to do it with joy. 
Pray for a godly attitude through that pain for that brother or sister. Pray that the works of God may dis- be displayed in that trial. Right? Pray for them to have joy. Pray for God to use them to put His glory on display in their suffering. John Piper says, don't waste your suffering. It's there. It may not be going away anytime soon. Don't waste it. Is anyone suffering among you? Let him pray. <coughs> then he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James, uh, James says sufficiency should drive us to, to praise God. When things are going well, when your soul is satisfied with God's sufficiency, sing praises to Him. A lot of us get in that position where we're sufficient, right? Everything's going good. What does James say to do? You see that Godward, God-dependent focus? Praise God for that. Rejoice with those who rejoice, brothers and sisters, right? When everything's going well with them, they're talking about that. You rejoice with them. You don't, you don't stew in bitterness going, well, why can't I have that? That's a brother and sister in Christ. You rejoice that God is blessing them in that way. But you also weep with them when they weep. Then he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. James says that all of life, whether suffering or sufficiency, should be lived with a Godward, God-dependent focus. <clears throat> Verses 14 through 16, James says, Our Godward, God-dependent focus should be shared with God's people. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. The main point here, quickly, is this. When you're facing a serious illness, and there's a lot of debate here as to what's going on, is it an actual physical illness, or is it a sin that's causing them severe problems in their life? It could be both. When you're facing a serious illness, what does he say to do here? You call on who? Who? the elders, you call them the leaders of the church. It's a way of expressing your confidence that God blesses through His people. Here's the prayers of His people, and God's people are the ones you need in your time of need. That's the point. He says specifically to call on the elders, but I think there's a principle that can be applied that we could call upon anyone. Any brother or sister in Christ in a time of need when there's suffering and sickness going on in our life. Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. <coughs> Some of us read this verse and we're like, you got to be kidding. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Confess means, refers to open honest sharing with another believer about your struggles and your failures with sin. You're like, no way. Nope. Ain't going there. What's the Bible say? Now, I'm not saying you go down the road and say, I believe this is a Christian. You knock on the door and you start confessing. They'll look at you like you've lost your... you got two heads and put you on your... It's another believer in the church that you've built that relationship with. You can say, man, I am struggling here. There's a sin in my life, and I, I can't seem to get victory over this thing. I'm struggling. Will you pray with me? Will you help hold me accountable? It's you admitting to another believer, I've got a weakness and failures and sins, and doing so is intended to create mutual fellowship. 
it builds a fellowship bond between you and that other person when you sit across the table from them and you say, Brother, I'm struggling. This is going on in my life. You know, I have a couple of guys in the church that I meet with on a regular basis. And we just say, Hey, this week, here's what happened. Confessing that. Help me, brother, pray about this. You're admitting to another believer you have a weakness. And you know, that, that's hard for us, right? Especially us men, because we don't like to be weak. We don't like to. And see, here's what we need to understand that sounds like weakness, but actually the Bible says that's a strength, right? To, to confess that to another brother, and that brother come alongside you and help you put that sin to death. There's also the idea here that fellow believers have run into a bit of <coughs> relational problem. They're at odds with one another. Maybe one has said something about the other that has brought some tension. Maybe there's been a disagreement over whatever. And James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Notice here James doesn't say, go confess your sins to somebody else. He says, you do it to one another. There's something going on, some friction, something going on there. (coughs) You've misspoke or you've had a crossword or bitterness. It doesn't say go to someone else. It says go to them. He doesn't say go confess your sins to a priest, nor does he say get together with a group of others, maybe in the hallway at church, and talk about that, that you and this other believer have had. You don't get on the phone. And listen to me. You do not get on Facebook. And you know what I mean. You stay off of that. I'm amazed at how brave people can get on a keyboard. He says, go to that person. This is you going to the person from whom you're at odds with and seeking to bring about reconciliation. You're you're looking to extend forgiveness and to be forgiven and to to bring about a restoration of relationships. So you're confessing here to the one you've offended and you're praying for one another that you may be healed. And some of you are thinking, "Well, well... Who's responsible to go in those situations? My daddy always taught me, he said, he said, Gary, just be the bigger man. Whether you're at fault or not, seek to restore the relationship. Then he says in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James says that there's power where? In prayer. Get together, confess your sins with another, and pray together. This is an encouragement for Christians to confess and pray together. James reminds the church that prayer is effective. <coughs> verses, excuse me, not verses, but point number three. A covenant community is a worshiping people. Romans 12.1 and Colossians 3.16. Bible, page 947. <clears throat> so a covenant community is a, a worshiping people. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans 12.1 deals with individual worship. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the individual believer. The verse calls on the Christian to give himself or herself totally to God. That's what's going on in verse 1. You give it all. 
This is more than giving God 30 minutes or an hour or two on Sunday. It's 24-7, 365. Everything. All in. You commit yourself totally to God, and the reason you do so is because of God's mercy. Look there, 12-1. I appeal to you, therefore... That word therefore is referring to everything that's been said in chapters 1 through 11. Therefore, brothers, who's he talking to, church? Believers. Men, women, believers in Christ. How does he appeal to them? By the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul is calling us to live for God, to love God, to obey God, to delight in God's Word, to delight in God's will, to delight in assembling together, to live out because of the mercy of God toward us. You give everything to God because God has done what? Given it all for you. All right? Paul is exhorting us to obedience because of what God has done for us. He says, in light of God's grace, in light of God's mercy, you do this. The Christian life is not do this and live. It is, I have given you life, now do this. That word present means to surrender, to to yield up. You do this at the point of salvation, but as you grow in the Christian life, you become aware of areas in your life They're not yielded to God, and you put those things on the altar. That goes back to sitting and confessing your sins with one another and praying with one another. Even though I said this is individual, the idea here is the sanctification process that goes on in the life of a believer. You become aware of the Lordship of Christ more than you ever have before, so you yield again and again and again. It's a continuous thing in life, yielding up more to God. You surrender your body, it says here, as a living sacrifice. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament were what kind of sacrifices? Dead sacrifices. You notice the difference here? It's a, it's a living sacrifice. And body refers to the Christian's mind, his eyes, his ears, his hands, his feet. In other words, it means what, church? All of it. Sacrifice is a call for the professing Christian to give everything for Jesus. Because of God's mercy, the Christian presents his life on the altar and gives everything for Jesus. You professing believer, you join a church, you commit to the covenant, you're saying, I'm going to live my life by God's grace and by His mercy upon my life. I'm going to commit it all. I'm going to give it all to Him. (coughs) Salvation is the free gift that costs you everything. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't call me a heretic. Salvation didn't cost you anything. It cost God everything But salvation is a free gift that costs you everything. The Bible nowhere says, repent, trust Jesus, and then hold on to the areas of your life where you don't want to let go. You're not going to find that in the Bible. Romans 12.1 calls for a whole life sacrifice. And notice there it says, doing so is your spiritual worship. Some translations read, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. In light of what God mercifully has done for us, 
Grace has appeared bringing salvation to all men. In light of what God mercifully has done for us, it's only reasonable that we should give ourselves totally to Him. Do you see that? It's the most logical, reasonable thing you could do when you trust Christ is to do what? Give Him everything. <coughs> Colossians three sixteen. <clears throat> Pew Bible, page nine eighty four. <clears throat> and I know uh, we did this. We dealt with this verse just a few weeks ago. Uh, but I want to remind us again. He says, uh, again, this is, this is kind of going back to that Hebrews 10.24 thing of not forsaking, gathering, not neglecting that. We're, we're gathering, we're coming together. <coughs> he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Colossians 3.16 gives instructions for how we should worship when we're gathered. That's what he's talking about here. The Word of Christ, the Word about Jesus, the Gospel. We're to do, what are we to do, church? We're to let it what? Dwell in us. Dwell has the idea of letting something come in and take ownership. And the Gospel, notice there, is not just to dwell, but it's to dwell how? Richly. Among us. The Gospel should saturate our worship gatherings. The gospel should saturate our worship gatherings. We're commanded not to forsaken, gathering together each week, and we gather to dwell richly upon Christ. <clears throat> we gather each week to celebrate and to remind one another of our rescue from God's wrath by the grace of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we come for. We're reminding one another of those things. We need to hear God's Word week after week proclaiming to us that we're no longer condemned. I don't know about you. I, I was listening to that song this morning, Redeemed. I am not what I used to be. Hallelujah. Praise God. I can sing that going. I remember what I was, but I know what I am now. I'm redeemed. Forgiven. Sins cast in the sea of forgetfulness. We need to be reminded of that week after week after week. We need to hear God's Word remind us that Jesus is the only way to have our sins forgiven. <clears throat> Look at verse 16 again. <clears throat> I won't deal with everything, but we're just going to hit this and move on. Paul gives us a particular way to follow the command to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in us. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in hymns, excuse me, in all wisdom, singing hymns, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to do what? We're to be teaching. That word teach means to impart truth. The word admonish means to warn or exhort. <clears throat> we impart truth. We warn one another with the gospel by teaching the Word of God. But verse 16 also tells us that there's another specific way that the gospel dwells richly. And that way is through what? Singing. Which teaches and what? Admonishes. It, we teach and we admonish one another 
singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing is also a means by which we teach and admonish. And the following words, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Expand on that same idea. <coughs> singing, the songs being sung. What does he say here they need to be doing? When we sing those songs, they need to be doing what? Teaching and admonishing one another. This means we have a responsibility when we gather to sing songs that teach good theology. The most important question to ask of a song, and I'll even point this out to you on your car radio or in your home if you're listening to Christian music. The most important question to ask of a song is, what does this song teach about God? That'll be the first thing that pops into your mind. Is it theologically correct? How does this song point me to Jesus or does it point me to Jesus? Those are the questions we need to ask. <coughs> Fourthly, a covenant community is a concerned people. A covenant community is a concerned people. Second Corinthians chapter 13 Verse 11. Page 971. Pew Bible. Finally, brothers, rejoice. <coughs> Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Brothers, it's used as a reference both to men and women. It's referring to believers. The men and women of the church, the men and women of Red Bud Baptist Church are members of God's family and thus brothers and sisters in Christ. <coughs> Due to the repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. That makes you a brother and sister in Christ. So when you come on Sunday morning and you refer to someone as brother or sister, that's good and well. But you really need to think about how you're saying that. We kind of get casual with it, right? Hey, brother. What that word really means is, me and you and Jesus, we're family. We're in God's family. In this whole chapter, 2 Corinthians 13, Paul is calling for professing Christians to walk in righteousness, and he was rebuking those who didn't. And he finishes this letter by reminding the believers of what is important. <coughs> Quickly, we'll go through these. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Now, I'm well aware that some of you have translations that have the word farewell or goodbye. And you're going, I'm not making the connection. Goodbye, farewell, or rejoice. <clears throat> the Greek word here has many uses, okay? Its dominant meaning has to do with joy or rejoicing. It's as if Paul were saying in his final words, which some of you have translations that says goodbye or farewell, he's saying rejoice or joy. Rejoicing or joy is essential in the church. I heard a gentleman the other day say, he remembers as a kid growing up, his grandmother, every time you met her, here's how she greeted you. Joy. And then when you would leave, she'd say rejoice. You know where that comes from? That's what Paul's doing here. It's a, it's a greeting. It's a, it's a farewell to rejoice. Joy or rejoicing is in 
these remaining commands. He says, aim for restoration. Some translations read, be perfect, be complete. The idea is not that of adding something that is missing, but of putting things in order or adjusting things that are out of order to put back in place or to mend. Joy or rejoicing comes with restoring. Restoring unity. Working at restoring those professing Christians who are wavered. Aim for what? Joy in restoring. That will restore whose joy? For theirs for sure, but it should restore joy to the church that someone wavered has repented and they've come back. Then he says comfort one another. The idea is that of... um, being exhorted, exhort, urge wavered believers to, to be confronted by the truth. <coughs> Make yourself a note. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, But exhort one another, listen, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. How often do we exhort one another, church? Every day. As long as we call it today, and we're going to call it today, we're to do what? We're to exhort people. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That goes back to what we were saying earlier, right? Every day, as long as it's day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Then he says, agree with one another. Think the same thing. Now, this is not a call for agreement for the sake of agreement. But for unity, listen, unity in the truth. It's not agreeing just to agree, but it's agreeing... Unity in the truth. That they were to agree with one another on the main things. This meant that God's Word must be the standard. Listen, God's Word has to be the standard and the source of unity. We don't agree just to be agreeing. We agree in unity based on what? What God's Word says. <clears throat> then he says, live in peace. Live in peace flows out of agreement with one another. Then there's a promise that comes with the that obedience, and the God of love and peace will be with you. When the church does the will of God, when they covenant together to do the will of God, God's love and peace are with them. <coughs> Galatians 6.2. We're about done. <coughs> Page 975 in the Pew Bible. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens. What two words show up in that verse again that we've heard over and over today? One another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That word bear has the idea of carrying with endurance. The word burden refers to heavy loads that are difficult to, to even lift or carry. The word bears in the present tense. It's a continuous action. We're to be doing what continuously? Caring with endurance. Helping our brothers and sisters with their burdens. What burdens are we to bear? I'm glad you asked. 
Look at verse 1. <coughs> Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The burden is the sin of which your fellow Christian falls into or the sin he falls back into from which he's just been delivered. A persistent, oppressing temptation is one of the heaviest burdens a Christian can bear. You ever been there as a Christian? This temptation that just, you know, kind of rides you like a horse. All you need to do is put a saddle on and it just keeps pressing you. That goes back to this idea of getting with another brother or sister and saying, help me carry the load, brother. We're to bear one of those burdens. A mature believer is one who truly loves his brother or sister in Christ and sincerely wants to restore him or her to fellowship with Jesus and the church. Professing Christian, when you fall into sin, or when you have another believer fall into sin, you have an obligation, if you fall into sin, to let other believers help you carry that load. You're not to live in isolation. You're to go to another brother or sister. And you're going, but they might. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, if another brother comes to you, another sister comes to you and confides in you, that better stay with you. Right? That better stay with you. That's between you and another brother. It's not for you to be casting out to everyone else. This brother is is burdened and they're coming to you and they're wanting your help. And your help is not going and telling someone else. Your help is helping them carry that load. James 5.16 says what? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be what? Healed. We read that verse early. When we do this, it says here that we fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ refers to the person and work of Jesus. To bear, listen, to bear one another's burdens is the ultimate imitation of Jesus. To come alongside another believer and help them carry their load, that burden they're under, you are imitating Jesus when you do that. Bearing one another's burdens is the way of Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree. That word bore is the same thing as bear. He came and He did what? He helped lift the load and He put it on Himself. And then Isaiah chapter 53 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. See, when you bear the burdens of somebody else, who are you imitating? Jesus. Because Jesus bore what? Your burdens. This makes being a believer, and particularly a church, a church member, this makes it a big deal, right? Being a believer and being a member of the local church is a big deal, according to the Word of God. Your handout should have this section listed on the back of it, I believe. Does it? <coughs> Read along with me. So what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do, church member, believer? 
Let's read what we're supposed to do. You ready? We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will seek to worship God in spirit and truth, both in our personal lives and in our corporate assemblies. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to be a church member. Let's pray.